Hello, and welcome to Where the Rubber Meets the Road podcast with Safe Ride for Kids. You know, driving is the most dangerous activity that we do every day, but obviously you and your family have things to do and places to be. And at Safe Ride for Kids, we want to help you and your family arrive safely by equipping you with innovative products and unbiased information from our team of certified safety experts. I'm Greg DeRocher, and today I'm co-founder and CEO at Safe Ride for Kids. But my first career was as a firefighter paramedic, where unfortunately I got to see firsthand the devastation that car crashes can have on, on people and families. That's also where I got started in injury prevention education. Back in 2000, I got started as a certified child passenger safety technician because safety in the car is largely dependent on the parents and the caregivers' choices. I've actually been an instructor of that car seat curriculum, certifying technicians, since 2001. I am Amy DeRocher. I am co-founder and creative director at Safe Ride for Kids. I became a certified car seat technician back in 2004, um, and I write most of the content for our website. And we are parents to three children. Today, we're going to be talking about transitioning too early. And what we're talking about is transitioning through the stages of car seat safety. So uh, you can refer back to our first episode where we actually went in depth into the various stages as uh, laid out by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Um, but in a nutshell, it's rear facing with a harness, forward facing with a harness, seatbelt positioning, and then ultimately the last stage is just using the vehicle seatbelt. And at Safe Ride for Kids, we actually include a plus stage where we include pregnancy as one of those stages of that car seat safety uh, spectrum. But today what we're talking about is from the, um, you know, as a child outside the womb is progressing through those stages over the years as they get older and bigger. There's a, a sense, uh, a, a sentiment, I guess, in parents that we're graduating our kid to the next stage. You actually see it all of the time on social media. Oh, my kid just graduated to a forward-facing car seat. Yay. Like, it's something to celebrate. <laughs> and we're going to give you a different perspective on that, um, where it's actually less of, a, of something to celebrate. Um, the reality is, is that as a child goes through these stages, each stage is a decrease in the protection offered by the system that they're using. So essentially, rear facing is safer than forward facing with a harness. Uh, forward facing with a harness is safer than using just a seatbelt system and then or with a seatbelt positioning device, like a booster seat or uh, like the ride saver vest or things like that that are designed to help the seatbelt fit a child. And then the final stage is just being an occupant using the vehicle's seatbelt. Now we've gone in depth uh, about these different stages and about why you want to remain rear-facing as opposed to forward-facing in previous episodes. Um, so again, the stages was episode one, and choosing which direction your child should be in is episode nine. Um, but just to kind of real briefly go over um, 
so the the purpose of, of restraining you is, of course, to keep you out in the car um, as safely as possible if there's a crash. And the restraint systems are designed to contact the stronger parts of your body, multiple points of your body to spread out the crash force. So again, when you're rear-facing, the child is um, being supported by the, his whole back, neck, and head are being supported by the child seat. And then once you turn him forward-facing, of course, he's being restrained just by the harness system. So there's a lot of neck and head movement that can occur. Um, and then when you go from the five-point harness system to a seatbelt system, now you're going from five points to three points contacting the body. Um, so you're reducing contact points, which um, makes crash forces more in those points rather than spread out. Yeah, and if you think about um, a diagonal restraint, like the shoulder belt of the seatbelt going diagonally across the body, only one of the two shoulders is now being restrained. So there's actually the potential for some rotation of the upper body, uh, you know, that unrestrained shoulder to rotate around the seatbelt, for example. So there's just less points of contact, as Amy was pointing out. And all of this presumes um, that the vast majority of car crashes statistically are a forward impact. So that's currently the only required testing is forward. Uh, there is uh, some changes to that in the works to require side impact crash testing, but that's still being worked out between the government and the car manufacturers and the car seat manufacturers and everybody getting on the same page. Now, some car seat manufacturers do say that they side impact crash test their seats, um, but there's no standards to test those two yet, so we don't really... There's no requirement to <clears throat> to do that. Um, so one of the pr things that we're going to talk about today is what's the downside of transitioning too early? And we're going to take it by stage and look at what are the downsides, like say in the rear facing to forward facing, what do you, what are the, what are the downsides to doing it too early? And what is the best practice? Well, best practice is to keep them rear facing for as long as possible. Now, several states have been changing their laws to update them to require rear-facing until two years old. Um, other states haven't done that yet. So some states, like, for instance, Colorado still says to keep your child rear-facing for up to a year. Um, unfortunately, a year is still too early. Um, and there are people who are actually changing their child earlier than a year. I think it might be a, a sense that they've outgrown the infant carrier so maybe it's time to turn them forward facing. Well, it's not time to turn them forward facing when they outgrow their infant carrier. It's time to get them a convertible seat that starts out rear facing and gets turned forward facing later on. But um, but best practice is to keep them rear facing for as long as possible, but at the very least until two. And the reason for that is when we turn a child forward facing from rear facing, as Amy described, in a rear-facing position, the shell of the car seat, the back of the child's car seat, is supporting the head, neck, and spine. And it's that central nervous system of brain and spinal column and neck uh, vertebrae, you know, that the spinal column as it travels through the neck, um, that is the most susceptible to severe injury in a car crash. So 
when we turn a child forward facing too early, the problem is that now all the restraining force to restrain their head, which is already disproportionately large for their body size, all of that restraining force goes to the vertebrae and the ligaments between the vertebrae in the neck. So now we're depending upon a weak bone structure, meaning that their vertebrae are not as strong as they could be or will be in the future. They're still soft from being young and fast, rapidly growing and things like that. So the longer we keep them rear facing, the more time that those vertebrae in the neck have to get stronger and the, the ligaments, you know, uh, securely rooted into those vertebrae because <clears throat> it doesn't sound like much, but as little as a quarter inch of stretch of the spinal cord within the spinal column. So the actual nerve of the spinal cord, uh, as little as a quarter inch of stress of, of stretch can cause permanent injury to the spinal cord. And that is, uh, you know, could be a life threatening injury to a child. Uh, so we want to keep them rear facing just to give those bones in the neck as long as possible to get as strong as possible so that the neck can restrain the head in a forward impact. So that's why it's important to keep them rear facing till at least the two year old mark. It's just going to give that those vertebrae that much longer to get harder and then if we are to get stronger and then if we continue that beyond to the upper weight limit rear facing weight limit for the restraint you might get another six months 12 months out of that child restraint keeping that child rear facing some parents are <clears throat> excuse me able to keep their child rear facing up to four or five years old so the longer the better the longer the better rear facing as long as you're within the specs of the seat that you're using. So the next stage in the process is going from a five point forward facing harness into a seat belt positioning device. What do we see going on there, you know, with the laws around the country and what do we see parents tending to do? Um, some states actually say that they children are required to start using a booster seat at four years old. Now, whether or not they will actually give you a ticket if your child is older and still in a five-point harness, I don't know. I certainly hope not because it's the safer way to travel. Haven't heard of anybody doing that. No. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, in some states, um, they try to make their laws very specific in hopes that um, parents will be able to follow them and keep their children safer. But unfortunately, it's not necessarily best practice um, because we don't necessarily want children who are four years old being required to be in a booster seat. Um, most booster seats start at four years old, and a lot of safety organizations will recommend that you not put a child in a booster seat until five years old. Now, I'm, I don't feel like I've heard um, as much issue with this transition as there was in the past, and I think maybe it was it's because um, car seats are just bigger and going up to heavier weight limits now. And so parents are just keeping their children in it longer. Mm -hmm. And so by the time they're ready to move their child out of a forward facing five point harness, they're booster ready anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, 20 years ago when I got started in, in doing car seats, 
the vast majority of five point harness car seats maxed out at 40 pounds and there was very little emphasis in the in the safety community or in the laws around the country to push that middle stage of seatbelt positioning and i think over the last 20 years they've done a great job of of creating innovative products that allow for an easy transition to a seatbelt positioning device and the education and access to, the, to those devices. And increasing the laws too. Yeah, and changing the laws to, to reflect that, that intermediary step between forward-facing uh, five-point harness and you know, just using the seatbelt. And the problem there is that the adult seatbelt system in the car is made for adults. It's not made for the anatomy of a child. That sounds so obvious. It does sound obvious, but when you think about it, you know, obviously a kid's body is different than the adult. So in a crash, they're gonna have a problem. So the other transition where we see a lot of parents um, transitioning too early is from the booster seat to the seat belt. Um, I think part of that could be because of the law a lot of state laws have, you know, a child must remain in a booster seat until eight years old. So parents think, oh, well, once my child's eight years old, then he can ride in a seatbelt, no problem. And I'm going to throw a couple states under the bus here, but uh, Florida, they only require booster seats until age five. Wow. And South Dakota also. However, Florida is currently, and they've done this before, but they're currently trying to change that law and make it older. Um, but we're not looking at age because most children, six, eight, definitely not five, don't fit into a seatbelt. So we want to make sure that you're not transitioning those children out of booster seats until they actually fit the seatbelt. And for most kids, that's somewhere between nine and 12 years old. Yeah. Um, the kind of magic number for height is four foot nine inches, but really it depends on whether or not the child can five step out of the seat, um, out of the booster seat into the seat belt, which um, we're going to go into in their next podcast, um, how to five step and check your seat belt fit for your child. Um, but that's what we're looking for is proper seat belt fit, not necessarily age or height, but because it's going to vary for cars and it's going to vary from the, the, the child and how they're built to the vehicle that they're in and the seating position that they're in in the vehicle. So we'll get into that in, in our next uh, the five-step podcast. But, um, you know, when a parent is thinking about uh, moving out of the five-point harness into the booster seat, some of the things that are one of the things that might be crossing their mind or, or kind of nudging them that way is like peer pressure. You know, the kids are at an age now where they're might be influenced by what their friends are doing. Um, so if the parents, if the friends' parents have, you know, ditched the five point harness for the quote, quote, more grown up booster seat. Or the booster seat for the seatbelt. Or the booster seat for the seatbelt. Because by then the kids are even older and more influenced by their peers. Yep. So that's going to be one of those influences. And then, um, convenience you know uh, some five-point harnesses require that the parent kind of get in there and help the kid get properly restrained um, as soon as they the parent graduate or 
as soon as the parent moves, transitions to that seatbelt positioning device, there, there may be more freedom for the parent when getting the kids in the car and hitting the road. So the parent feels like it's a graduation for them. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 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 yes, more freedom. So, you know, those are the things that you need to be thinking about and, and how to, you know, have that conversation with your child and, and, you know, communicate to them that it really is about their safety. And you can point out, you know, that here, look in your five point harness, see it touches you here on both shoulders and it has, you know, down here in your hips it's also, and that is going to help keep you safer if there is a car crash. And getting the kids buy-in into why it's important to stay using this five-point harness till the upper weight limit of the five-point harness and then transitioning to the seatbelt positioning, whether that's, again, the, a booster seat or the ride-safer harness that we sell. Um, you know, the ride-safer harness is kind of cool because it doesn't have the big plastic shell. Uh, it might be easier to sell to the kid as their grown-up uh, harness or their grown-up vest or, you know, you can equate it to a race car driver or things like this. That I've might... heard some kids say it's their race car vest, it's their spacesuit vest, it's, so they like it There, there might be various some... reasons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there might be a sales pitch involved from you to your child about using the, the vest. And one of the things that we like about the vest is it actually has kind of a dual function. It's a seatbelt positioning device without lifting the child. So it's designed to bring the seatbelt down to the child as opposed to a booster seat that lifts the child up to the seatbelt system. Um, the other thing, though, that's really cool is it has an internal harness built into it. Now, if you have a vehicle that has a lap and shoulder belt, you're not required to use the tether that comes with the vest. That's only required if you're in a lap-only seatbelt, like on a school bus or something like that. But you are allowed to use the tether in addition to the vehicle seatbelt. So it's kind of a hybrid cross between a five-point harness and just the three-point seatbelt system, seatbelt positioning device. Yeah, because now you have um, the seatbelt, which is, which is three points, plus a tether, which adds another point on the shoulder. So it kind of becomes a four-point Plus, it has all the padding, so it spreads out the crash energy a little bit more. So, so yeah, it's nice. Uh, it actually is, is padding that absorbs and dissipates the, the, the restraining force of the seatbelt going across the child's body. So it has benefits above just being a booster seat, but it also fits into the seatbelt positioning category. So yes. another, it's kind of like a transition, not really... Um, a car seat transition, but a transition that a lot of parents do too early is allowing their child to sit up in the front seat. So um, a lot of states have laws that require children must be in the back seat, and some of those states actually require their children be in the back seat through age 12, which is actually what's best practice recommended. So nobody under 13 in the front. And why is that? What's, what's the benefit of keeping kids in the back? Well, there's a few reasons, and um, one is, of course, the, the airbags are not built for children, so children might not be the right size. They could be not sitting in a correct position, be close, too close to the airbag, and become in the airbag deployment zone. 
Um, the other issue is their bone density. Their, their bones aren't developed enough yet to take the impact crash energy up on the front seat. So the, I guess the, the physics principle that's being applied in that context is the further that you are away from the point of impact, the less energy your body's going to experience. Mm-hmm. Is that true? So by, because most car crashes are a front impact, by being in the back, the kids are less likely, they're going to be exposed to less of that crash energy than if they were in the front, which is, you know, obviously a benefit, uh, preferred, you know, and then the other thing is like Amy said, you know, the, the airbags are there in the front, which have the potential to cause injury, but also mitigate injury. But if you're not properly positioned pre-crash, it can be a, a cause of injury. But another thing is when you're in the back seat, you're also choosing what's around you, you know, so you're choosing instead of a dashboard, you're choosing the back of the seat in front of you as the potential other outside object that you're going to, the child will be interacting with. So there are definitely reasons to keep kids in the back. And again, um, you want them in the back seat. Uh, anybody under 13 should be in the back. And ultimately, even 13, 14, 15-year-olds are better off in the back. At some point, though, you got to get the kid up front and thinking about driving and, and being the responsible uh, person who will be driving the car, which I know for many of you, that's way down the road. <laughs> but it is one of those steps that you need to be thinking about. Is how do you, you know, how do you uh, cultivate good safety practices, good defensive driving practices? Because ultimately, that's the best object, you know, objective or the best goal is to have good defensive drivers that don't get in car crashes. And the good news is that today, more and more technology is being built into the cars to prevent or yeah, prevent crashes from even occurring. Automatic braking, automatic steering, things of that nature. So our safety tip for this week is remember that your state laws are typically bare minimums. So it's best to follow best practice as much as possible for your circumstances and wait on those transitions as long as you can. Yep. And and just remember, you know, if you think about them as a each step as each transition is a decrease in safety that might help encourage you to uh, delay that transition as long as possible. For our parenting tip this week. Um, so I'm going to share one from our friend Vinu um, that she, it, she just worded it really well. So I'm going to just quote her. Uh, this is Vinu from Vinu Inspires. Um, she says, our kids' inner voice reflect our outer voice, what we say to them, how we say it. It's critical that we remain mindful of how we're interacting with our kids in terms of words we use, the tone we express, and the message that we convey to ensure that they consistently feel loved, respected, and well-supported by their parents, no matter what the situation. With that said, no one is perfect, and we all make mistakes. The key is is how we recover from those mistakes. How do we address those mistakes with our children? Do we apologize? Or do we just act like nothing ever happened because we're perfect parents? <laughs> you know, so um, knowing how to acknowledge and apologize for your behavior 
um, because we do make mistakes. Um, and children learn about the world about based on how we interact with them and their place in the world based on how we talk to them. You know, I, this actually reminds me of the experience we had with our oldest, who's uh, soon to be 15. He's currently 14. And uh, we got a puppy in the last few months. And uh, <laughs> he was, you know, snuggling up to the puppy, loving the puppy. But he's also uh, one to get frustrated with the puppy when she doesn't behave well. I made up a, I made a comment to him in the moment there when he was loving on the dog that, you know, you always love the dog, but you might not always like the behavior. You might get frustrated with the behavior. And it really clicked for him in that moment because he was experiencing that. He was loving the dog, but he didn't like her behavior all the time. And I, I pointed out to him that sometimes that's how we're, we feel as parents. <laughs> and that's a lot of what Vinu was trying to say is, you know, it's, it's not how we treat the kids is what's teaching them how to look at the world. And, and how to view themselves. And how to view themselves. So thanks for joining us this week on our Where the Rubber Meets the Road podcast with Safe Ride for Kids. Hope you're doing well and drive safe.